Good afternoon and happy Thanksgiving. Today is November 21st and we're talking about evaluating exposure in a New York workers' compensation case. Hi, my name is Greg Lois. Today we're going to discuss how attorneys review cases for exposure analysis, when you're going to get that, uh, what are the milestones in the case where you're going to get that analysis from us, what we're looking at, um, what are the sort of unique things about New York workers' compensation cases and how we price them. Um, this is completely live, so please feel free to ask me any questions you want. Type them into me, and I can see them uh, pop up on our screen over here, and I will do my best to answer as many questions as I can. The goal for today is really to help you understand the way we think about exposure in a New York workers' compensation case, and more importantly, what kind of feedback or guidance should you expect from your New York workers' compensation defense attorney in regards to exposure. And just remember, in this conversation, I'm only going to talk about exposure. I'm never going to talk about reserves. That's your job as the risk professional. My job is to help you understand the risk in the case, uh, to understand the peculiarities of the specific jurisdiction, uh, and then give you our estimates of exposure. So what are the things I'm looking for? Well, whether the case is admitted or denied, I'm always thinking about, in a denied case, what are my fact defenses? What are my legal defenses? How good is my case going to be? What's the likely outcome? Should we try this case to conclusion? And I'm going to put all that together and come to you with, hey, here's what the exposure is. And it's going to be based on maybe a worst case exposure, and then uh, I'm going to adjust it or, uh, based on what I think the likely outcome at trial is. In an admitted case, I'm thinking about other things. I'm generally thinking about, hey, what is going to, what's the ultimate exposure going to be to the client, taking into account uh, the claimant's average weekly wage, which is going to be the number one determinant of overall dollar exposure. I'm going to think about what are their prior conditions? Um, do I get any credits? What's the current medical status in the case? Is treatment ongoing? What kind of surgeries or uh, interventions are we expecting down the road? Uh, how much are we current paying in indemnity and for how long? I'm also going to th think about things like risk transfer, meaning was someone else at fault here and should we be getting a credit or do we have a right to reimbursement because uh, someone else uh, harmed our employee? All those things are going to go into my consideration when I'm giving you my best case uh, evaluation as to, hey, this is what's going to happen. Should we go forward with this admitted established matter? Here's what ultimately you're going to be stuck with. So what are the parts of that? How do I, I sort of think through that? Well, in a denied case, I'm really thinking about uh, the case status and the strength of my defenses, right? In a denied case, I might have a fact-based defense. That defense could be based on things like did not arise out of in the course of employment, not my accident, or a credibility defense is also a fact defense. Something like, hey, the claimant is making up this story. There was no loss. There was no injury. So we're really going to take a look at how good are those defenses? What are going to be my proffers? What are my proofs that I'm going to come forward with at trial to demonstrate that either this accident did not happen or, for example, there is no causal relationship to the conditions or ailments alleged by the claimant? Other things I'm going to be thinking about are my legal defenses. Was this case filed out of time? Do I have a good notice defense? Uh, is there an opportunity for us to... Uh, you know, argue that this we have no legal liability or exposure in this claim. Um, I'm also going to give you some advice based on who the judge assigned is and what the venue is, how likely it is that we are going to prevail before that individual judge. 
I'm going to talk about who my opposing counsel is, you know, how predacious are they or how well prepared are they? Uh, what has been my experience with opposing counsel and what can I um, give you in terms of expectations as to how this denied trial is going to proceed? Um, I'm also going to be thinking about witness credibility in a denied matter. Uh, oftentimes we have a denied case where it's a, it did not happen at work. Uh, and my witness, for example, might be a video camera that surveils the workplace and shows that, hey, this accident never occurred here or it didn't occur the way they claim it occurred. Well, in, in a case like that where I have a slam dunk, excellent witness, that I'm not going to have to really be concerned about credibility, I'm going to be very comfortable arguing, hey, our exposure should be much lower. Uh, so these are the factors, I don't know, if, that we're going to look at in a denied case. Uh, what are my fact defenses? What are my legal defenses? Who's the judge? Who's opposing counsel? And then if I'm going to present witnesses, how good my witnesses are and what I know about the claimant's credibility, um, maybe information that we've developed by way of information, which could include social media checks, uh, uh, surveillance, private detectives, et cetera. Uh, I'm also going to think to uh, when I'm analyzing a particularly a denied case, what happens if we don't prevail at trial? Uh, we don't prevail on the cases not um, um, dismissed by the court, uh, no further action, discontinued. Well, do we have the opportunity for a post-trial action? What does that mean? An appeal. Remember, in New York workers' compensation cases, on an appeal, uh, you would stay the payment of benefits. So I will put that into my calculation uh, in terms of coming up with, hey, what is the likely exposure and should we settle this case and for how much? Now, typically in a denied case, if we do settle it, we're going to try to resolve it by way of a Section 32. So generally, my settlement analysis for a denied case would be in pursuant to Section 32 and would be a lump sum dismissal settlement analysis. Now, generally speaking, um, when a new case comes in and we have excellent legal defenses and it's a denied case, I will sometimes uh, still recommend to a client uh, maybe putting some de minimis settlement value on the case. $2,500, $3,500 for a Section 32. And the point of that would be simply to avoid the potential for further litigation and simply to avoid the potential for our adversary to seek post-trial relief. That would be an appeal and having to defend that appeal and go forward. So even cases where it seems like it's a slam dunk, and in fact, we've, we've got denied cases that we've prevailed on, but we still try to resolve the case by way of a Section 32, and that's because a, the case is fully and truly closed forever. The person cannot come back later and try to reopen under Section 123. And of course, it forecloses the opportunity for any post-trial relief or appeals filed by the claimant. Uh, of course, if I'm doing this and I'm saying, hey, this didn't happen at work and here's through 2,500 bucks, I'm also expecting to get a release and resignation as part of that settlement uh, to dispose of the matter with entirety and not further expose my client to perhaps another baseless lawsuit filed by the same employee. All right, let's talk about an admitted case. There's a couple of um, things that we look at in an admitted case, which are a little different than the denied case. So again, if the case is admitted, I'm going to look at things like what is the average weekly wage? And the reason for that is, hey, I, I know this case is either going to go for a scheduled loss of use or a loss of wage earning capacity award. Of course, I'm going to try to do this by way of Section 32. 
but we know the valuation of the case is going to be driven by the claimant's pre-injury average weekly wage. I'm going to look at their priors as well. So I think it's standard of care is a claims index bureau report or an ISO report showing the prior claims history of this individual claimant. So we can determine if they've had prior claims for similar body parts in the past. I'm going to look at the type of medical treatment they've received in this case. In fact, most times I'm estimating exposure in a matter. I don't have my final permanency evaluation when the person's still in active treatment, but we know, hey, the value of a torn meniscus in the knee, we know what that is. So basically I'm going to be giving you my overall exposure analysis really based on the medical presentation of the claimant as well as how much lost time there is. These are the two drivers in your workers' compensation case that are going to really give us the uh, sort of idea of how, um, how costly it's going to be to try to settle those claims. Of course, just like a denied case, we're going to look at who is the judge assigned, who's my opposing counsel. I'm going to be thinking about witness credibility, but frankly, we know under the Section 21 presumptions that if the claimant can come forward with medical proof showing an injury and it's an admitted case, there's going to be some overall exposure there. Um, the last thing I think about, of course, is my risk transfer opportunity. Hey, remember under Section 29 of the workers' compensation law, you are entitled to everything back that you pay in a workers' compensation case, less the costs of the suit and the uh, claimant's attorney's fee. So that's a lot of recovery can come back to you and that can significantly reduce your overall exposure. Of course, in the admitted or established case, there is the potential for a post-trial action meeting an appeal, uh, but generally speaking, where it is a admitted compensable body part, uh, the only issues that we'll see on appeal are things like adding in new consequential body parts or additional treatments or surgeries down the road. But generally speaking, we should be able to give you a very good idea right from the onset as to what the overall exposure in the case is going to be. So important for us is to get our medical expert report. Uh, in New York, we call them independent medical evaluators because they are supposed to be truly independent. Uh, of course, the treating physician will provide a impairment report for the claimant. Uh, but from the defense side, we're going to utilize the skills of an IME. To get the best IME report, we keep stressing this, a really good tailored cover letter I think is table stakes and should be done in absolutely every single case. Uh, the second thing is I, we can still serve a questionnaire on the claimant to have them fill it out in the doctor's office. We think that that's also standard of care. And of course, remember, you can send any non-medical documents, including surveillance video that you obtain to the evaluating physician for them to consider at the time they are performing their independent medical evaluation of the claimant. Remember that when you submit surveillance video to the evaluating physician, it has now lost all of its surprise value at trial, but it still could be useful to do. Remember that I am not allowed to talk to my evaluator, my IME doctor outside of court. I cannot prep them for their testimony. And that's why that cover letter is so important. It's really our opportunity to try to shape the evaluation and the examination that's going to be conducted by our evaluator so that we get the best possible report. It is per se disallowed in New York for me to communicate with the IME doctor privately. Any communication I have with that doctor needs to be copied to all parties. So it means typically in writing. And so it's really not, um, we're not really able to persuade or push them other or outside of that 
cover letter, which is going to be sent to all parties. So it needs to be written rather neutrally. All right. We got to be thinking about the venue. Who's the judge? What have we seen before this same court in the past? What courtroom are we in, right? What part are we in? Are we downstate? Are we in New York City? Are we upstate? Are we up in Syracuse, Plattsburgh? Uh, are we someplace outside of the city? And just knowing that there is a variation in valuation depending on where you are in the state. Uh, we're also going to tell you about our experience with opposing counsel. I actually like it when my opposing counsel is very experienced at New York workers' compensation law because they're not going to come at me with crazy demands, $3 million demand. Uh, they're going to know, hey, this is New York workers' compensation. Here's what the normal values are for these cases. They're not really seeking crazy things, and they're e generally easier to negotiate with. Um, every case, we should be thinking about the potential for risk transfer. Uh, New York's got a very robust statute that allows for risk transfer if there is a potential for a third-party action. So in every case, you have the potential for either reimbursement from the actual tortfeasor, or of course, you can directly subrogate in New York, which we can do that under the statute, should the claimant be injured by a third party, but then choose for whatever reason not to pursue that uh, third-party settlement or claim themselves. We can step into their shoes and do it. In my experience where we've had to subrogate, generally speaking, once we begin that subrogation action, the claimant wakes up and says, wait a second, maybe I should have an attorney representing me here. And of course, we encourage that, right? Because uh, that's somebody who's essentially going to be working on a contingency to try to get us money back in our workers' compensation case. So that's something we will generally participate when and cooperate with because we want them to go out and get money from a third party because that all comes back to us and serves to reduce our exposure, right? So that's something that we would want to help. So <clears throat> there's two different types of uh, in, uh, permanency exposure in New York. One's called scheduled loss of use. That's for hands, finger, feet, toes, enumerated body parts like ears and eyes. They comes from a schedule or a chart. That's why it's called a scheduled loss of use. How is a scheduled loss of use found in New York? Well, New York publishes something called the Disability Duration Guideline, and the doctor is essentially supposed to measure the loss of range of motion and the lack of function in the individual or affected body part and turn that into a number on a report called the C-4.3 report. That's the doctor's recording the amount and extent of permanent residual disability in a scheduled body part. And when you can see here, and I have kind of a, a small one on the screen there, I got to point to my opposite side. Uh, this is a, a, a report where the doctor's saying, hey, there's a specific percentage of disability in this body part based on the New York Disability Duration Guidelines. Okay, so very straightforward. Typically speaking, the treating physician will come up with their own scheduled loss of use, our IME physician will come up with a figure. They are supposed to match if both doctors are applying the New York State Disability Duration Guidelines accurately and comprehensively, but they rarely actually do agree. Uh, in the past, I've seen some interesting things where, for example, the treating physician actually finds a lower scheduled loss of use than our evaluating physicians, typically because they did not apply the disability duration guidelines correctly. But we're going to get these two numbers and we're going to um, try to resolve this or compromise this with opposing counsel. That's the settlement process, negotiation process. The judge of compensation doesn't have to pick one or the other number. The judge of compensation in finding their own degree of disability can choose to use one, the other, a mixture of the both. 
whatever the judge wants to do. So, you know, this is very much open to negotiation on a schedule loss of use. Also remember that reducing your exposure in a schedule loss of use case is the fact that all of the temporary disability benefits you paid serve as a credit against permanency. Now there is a limitation to the number of weeks that can be awarded for each body part uh, and New York also has an idea called um, uh, protracted healing period. So a protracting healing period means that the uh, legislature, in all of its infinite wisdom in, back in 1911, said, hey, the average body part has a very specific uh, recovery time from its injury. So in the case of an arm, it's 32 weeks. In the, in the case of a leg, it's 40 weeks. And so essentially, if the claimant's recovery time exceeds the expected recovery time from an injury to that body part, additional weeks are added onto their award. That's called protracted healing period. This is a unique feature to New York where they sort of add on extra compensation if it takes the claimant longer than expected to recover from an injury. There's a lot of problems with this system. Of course, back in 1911 when the legislature came up with their expected healing period, uh, interestingly, one, we didn't have things like penicillin or x-rays, right, that didn't exist. So medical um, technology has certainly advanced uh, since then. It's not reflected in that chart. And the other interesting thing is it just says arm, 32 weeks. Now, the expected healing time for if I get a laceration on my arm is 32 weeks, and the expected healing time if my entire arm gets ripped off at the elbow is 32 weeks. So there's really no adjustment based on the severity of the injury. And so for this reason, we see protracted healing period coming into a lot of our cases and adding on additional exposure. In a scheduled loss of use case, the way we are estimating exposure is to take two-thirds of the average weekly wage and multiply it by the impairment rating or the scheduled loss of use rating. That equals your dollar exposure. It's pretty straightforward that each uh, scheduled loss of use percentage equates to a number of weeks. There are a maximum number of weeks for each body part, and so it's pretty easy to estimate based on doctor's reports what the scheduled loss of use exposure is going to be. Now, where the cases actually settle at, that's going to really be based on rule of thumb and experience as pretty much every single body part falls within a very narrow range for each type of injury that happens to that body part. The second system that um, uh, assesses permanency exposure in New York is called loss of wage earning capacity. And this is the system that assesses uh, degree and uh, nature of loss of wage earning capacity for all of the injuries that don't fit into the schedule loss of use chart. So what are those? things like the low back, psychiatric claims, cervical spine, um, things that are not enumerated on our scheduled loss of use. The court is required to go through a three-step process in a loss of wage earning capacity case. So in your typical low back case, uh, first the claimant has to reach maximum medical improvement. Then both sides have to get impairment ratings. We're gonna typically employ an IME doctor, our adversary is gonna use a treating physician. Those numbers are not gonna meet. The judge is supposed to consider the person's functional ability and the impact of their vocational ability on their ability to get a new job. So, for example, if the person doesn't speak English or is illiterate or uh, has never worked anything but a labor job, uh, a heavy labor job, and now they have a significant impairment, well, the judge is allowed to consider that in determining their ultimate award for a loss of wage earning capacity uh, claim. These are pretty sensitive to things like, what did the person do pre-accident? Um, are they able, do they have transferable skills? Are they able to get employed in a new position? 
with maybe some functional limitations within their body. Usually, it's, these are low back cases, these are neck cases, these are thoracic spine cases, these are your psych cases. They resolve by way of loss of wage earning capacity. But don't fret, I don't get too worried because these are very, we see them the same ones over and over again and it's very easy to tell you practically uh, where a, a given matter is going to resolve. These, this again is very much driven by average weekly wage. That is the big driver. So when you see a claimant with a low back injury and a high average weekly wage, you're looking at probably a high exposure settlement. So when are we talking about settlement? How do we time this? Here, we're always talking about it when within seven days of the case coming in. We're going to give you a complete exposure analysis. Sometimes it's very early in the case and maybe the medical course is going to change over the course uh, while they get to MMI, but we're going to give you that at time of referral. And then during the case's life cycle, as we defend a matter, when significant or milestone events occur, things like surgeries, release from care, return to work, um, needing to get an IME, getting those IME reports, getting that C-4.3 from the treating physician, we're going to again revisit that exposure analysis and keep updating it. Uh, I don't believe, and our practice here is not that, hey, when a case comes in, we try to put a number on it, that's it. We're constantly reevaluating the case as it goes through its life cycle, as we try to push it towards closure, and hopefully the things we're doing here are reducing exposure, right? We're finding grounds for Section 29 loss transfer to come in so that we can uh, start to, um, sorry, risk transfer coming in so that we can maybe get some contribution from another part. Or we're investigating a prior claim and learning that we have an opportunity to get a credit there or an apportionment for pre-existing disability. Um, or the claimant comes in and testifies very well on their own behalf and we say, wow, that they were very sympathetic, they made sense, they were able to demonstrate their lack of vocational factors and that might increase exposure. So. Exposure is something that we're going to talk about during the case lifecycle and try to keep you as up to date on that and informed on exposure as the case develops. So that's our brief overview of evaluating exposure in a New York workers' compensation case as well as the time that you're going to be getting those exposure analysis from us. Let me turn over now to see some live questions. I know there's been some audio issues. I'm getting some signals over here. Chris asked the question, Greg, if an employee who has an assembly factory worker position has a tar heart attack while on the clock, what high-level strategy do you take to deny the claim is not compensable? On the surface, there doesn't appear to be any circumstance from the work environment that would indicate it was caused by work. All right, so thanks, Chris. Uh, this is a question about cardiovascular accident or cerebrovascular accident incident, I should say, that just happened to occur at work, right? This happens. People have strokes. People have heart attacks. They have ischemic events. They have cerebrovascular events. And they could happen when you're sleeping, and some of these things are just congenital and can happen at work. In order to uh, defend that case, you really have to look at what is the nature of the work? Were they doing anything extraordinary or peculiar at the time of the event at work? You know, if you told me, hey, this person just happened to have a heart attack at work, they had a stroke at work, uh, they just happened to be on the clock, but Greg, they were having an easy day. And I say, okay, well, that's interesting. You know, tell me more. Oh, well, by the way, the air conditioners broke that day and it was 110 degrees on the shop floor. I'm gonna say, look, you have a problem, right? So you, we've gotta look into the exact work duties they were doing at the time of loss and think, is there anything that we were doing that exacerbated or contributed to that cardiac or cerebrovascular event occurring. Uh, we're gonna look at what was their normal work duties? 
Uh, what were the normal conditions of the employment? Um, had they just reported to work? Uh, what are the basics of the actual uh, timing of this event? What we've learned from defending hundreds of cardiac ischemic events is that there are precursors to a cardiac ischemic event. Oftentimes people come to work, they've been experiencing angina or chest pain or chest constriction for hours and sometimes days, uh, and then they have another incident at work. So you really need to look into that. Um, also, they're gonna perform blood tests at the hospital. Uh, when someone goes to the hospital and says, hey, I think my, my chest is hurting, I'm having trouble breathing, I've got pain going down my left arm, you know, all the classic signs of a heart attack, they will give them a blood test and they will look at something in the blood test called a triponin level. That triponin level will help them age or identify when did that heart attack actually occur. We've got a lot of cases that I've defended where the person came to work, was on the shop floor for an hour, and said, oh, I've got chest pain, I, you know, maybe they're experiencing angina, or maybe they're experiencing the residuals of a heart attack, but the heart attack actually occurred hours before. So really, these require a pretty in-depth uh, fact investigation. What were they doing? When did they appear at work? Did they complain to anybody? Did they look strange when they came in? You know, what was the circumstances of that day? What was the work they were doing that day? You know, how strenuous was it? Was it extraordinary? Was it normal work? And then look into the medicals. And you know, oftentimes you look into the medicals and you discover actually the ischemic event occurred days ago or two days ago or day, a day ago, uh, but the presentation of it uh, occurred in the workplace and they were taken from the workplace by ambulance or something, but they had actually been having chest pain for days. So look into all those things. Uh, they're complicated cases to defend. Remember, there are, is a presumption, which is if it occurred at work, it's likely to be found compensable, so you've got to be prepared with all your defenses. So I hope that was a good answer for you, Chris, and thanks for the question. Kim says, Greg, if the claimant continues to have a percentage of disability with no release to work in excess of the eventual scheduled loss of use rating, we have no resource for the amounts paid, correct? All right, so that's a, I think we're talking now about a scheduled loss of use case. And here's a situation where they get a very small schedule loss of use, but they've been out of work for a very, very long time. Well, that's where you have to be worried about that protracted healing period, because that would, in the weeks that they were totally temporarily disabled, you would add weeks onto that award. So sometimes, even though it's not a big award, meaning a big percentage, they can still get those protracted healing period weeks added onto it and money ends up moving. But it's also possible for someone to get a small schedule, to be out of work for not a lot of time, and really to be in no money moving. That's possible as well. So you have to look into the particulars of that individual case, but we've seen that, absolutely. Um, okay, Charlene says, Greg, in a motor vehicle accident, if our insured is at fault for the accident, can we still pursue loss transfer? Yeah, absolutely, you can try. Loss transfer is where uh, one of the vehicles involved is a commercial vehicle, and you can try to recover that first $50,000 of benefits. Generally speaking, uh, those are no-fault benefits, so it doesn't matter who's at fault in that loss transfer scenario. However, I will tell you that generally speaking, where your own employee is at fault, they cause the accident, your likelihood of reimbursement or subrogation is very, very low. All right. Uh, Kathleen says, Greg, I came in a little bit late. Naughty, naughty. Um, not sure if you address this uh, denied claim and the employee is a member of a union. How does resignation letter as terms of a full and final 32 to dispose of the case considered? All right, so I always love a section 32, but sometimes you can't do a section 32 because this person still works for you, right? And you don't want to have someone collect that section 32, go back to the shop floor and have that same accident again, right? They're gonna just keep doing it. 
So we generally counsel clients to try to do a Section 32 and a release and resignation if that makes sense. There are some things that are going to impair our ability to do that release and resignation. One of them is there might be a union contract or rule against that. They, or they cannot resign or the employer cannot ask them to resign because of the union rule. So that could be a challenge. Um, You've got to know the ins and outs of that union rule. Sometimes if the person's been out of work for a year or more, uh, then they're no longer part of under the union rules, but really have to look at it almost contract by contract and see what is the deal the employer has with that unionized employee. Um, you know, Generally speaking, where we are doing a Section 32 and a release and resignation, that's in my self-insured or large deductible client population, meaning they're pretty sophisticated, they have a pretty good understanding of their risk, and generally can get us access to those union contracts so that we can talk to them about doing this in a way that doesn't leave them open to either more lawsuits down the road or doing a Section 32, paying for release and resignation, and then having to take that employee back because you violated their contract. So you have to be very thoughtful and careful in those circumstances. Uh, great questions. Thanks, uh, Kathleen, Charlene, Kimberly, and Chris. It's all C's and K's today that ask me questions. Um, I hope this was helpful for everyone. If you have a question that I didn't answer or you didn't have time to type it in, please feel free to email me or call me. I'm always happy to answer your questions about these topics. Have a great day, everybody. Have a happy, happy Thanksgiving. I hope it's warm by you uh, and you're not in upstate New York and under seven feet of snow. Uh, and we'll see you next month uh, when we talk about our end of the year. Have a great one, everyone.